Welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ron Swallow. I'm Ed Greer. And I'm producer Bill. And we are back today talking about the greatest writers in comics. Last episode, we sort of talked about the grand old men of comics. Uh, No disrespect to any of whom are still living and are still old. Uh, And (laughs) they weren't all just men either. Yeah. But today... We want to transition from sort of the greats of the gold and silver and bronze age to arguably the writers working in the more sophisticated age of comic book storytelling. And that is essentially from the 90s until today. Um, I think if we're going to talk about greatest writers ever with respect to guys like Will Eisner, most of our choices are going to be from this time period. So this might even bleed into a third episode. Um, well, guys, what do yeah. you think? Well, the the one I just need to bring up two people right off the bat, just so I make sure that they're clear, because I do believe that their careers started in the seventies and eighties, but they started to manifest their final form in the nineties. One of which is the great Frank Miller. Now I understand sure. we did Frank Miller versus John Byrne episode. You can get all the Frank Miller facts from that episode. But the thing I want to impress upon you guys is like, yeah, much like Will Eisner, as we stated last episode, he started writing outside of, of so-called mainstream comics, doing the Sin City books, doing, you know, Ronin, taking, you know, these kind of uh, hard boiled, uh, you know, big guy in the rusty robot. Just, he really started doing all the stuff that was outside of so-called superhero comics and were more like personal and more like iconoclastic. And the stuff that he did in comics, though, was similarly iconoclastic, i.e. he brought in the ninja shit and the Bushido stuff and Wolverine and Daredevil, respectively, or flip them. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he brought in that stuff. He the the Kingpin, his work with the Kingpin has been well documented, uh, stealing him from Spider-Man. Just his contributions are really titanic, even if you weren't to count his independent comics and the stuff that. You know, and even if you don't, even he never did Dark Knight Returns, his Daredevil run would still be legendary. He would be, I guess he'd be like Starlin. I, I mean, I think he would still be a cut above Starlin just for yeah, yeah, yeah. Wolverine and Daredevil. I mean, yeah. honestly, like and, and, you know, I think Frank Miller suffers a little bit just because his art has taken such a weird turn. I'm not even going to say a bad turn because I think it's a combination of him trying to be more experimental and then just like the toll of age and health on art. But like this guy was absolutely reinventing comic art by the time he got to Sin City. And that stuff started with a lot of the techniques he was using early on with Daredevil, the electrographic novel, absolutely into the Dark Knight Returns. And don't forget about uh, Batman Year One as well. Yeah. This stuff not only is, is beautiful art, but is storytelling that I wouldn't say it's stuff comics have never seen, but like Frank Miller went back to the sort of hard boiled pulp roots of the comic book and brought it into the modern era. He, he was the one who really bucked the trend of saying, Hey, you know, comics are for kids. And again, that has spawned a bunch of shitty imitators, but the stuff that he wrote packed a goddamn punch, man. Like, he brought a mature sensibility to comic storytelling that reverberates to this day. Yeah, and he did one of the most important things that Ed loves in all 
comic books, which is uh, the white boy ninja. He loves a white boy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but he did. Uh, he absolutely did. But uh, but he did a great job with that. And he it's so interesting because, you know, uh, a lot of times people will watch like uh, like young comics comedians will watch some of the stuff that George Carlin did and be like, ah, I've seen it. I've seen it before. And I can see how funny it is, but I've seen it before. Right. And it's because they don't realize that that guy created the thing that you are seeing other people do now. And I right. think a lot of Frank Miller's stuff is the same way. Like, it, like you might watch him and go, it's kind of a little bit of edgy edge Lord guy, but then you realize like, no, he was pushing boundaries in a time when you weren't supposed to push boundaries really. And then by doing so, he created a bunch of people who imitated him who were basically edgelords. A hundred percent. And I, I think also we talked a, a little bit last time about how writing comics is just as much about being able to read the pictures as it is about, you know, the dialogue and the captions and we spoke about that in the context of, of Jack Kirby primarily, but also Will Eisner. And like we said, Miller following in the tradition of Eisner, if you look at those Sin City books, the rhythm, the pace, the use of negative space in black and white, like just that staccato pairing of incredibly impactful images with like that sparse narration, it was a it was a whole new feel of what a comic could be. And like, again, that's an innovation that has been often copied and never duplicated and all credit to Frank Miller. Yeah. And yeah. I argue a cinematics, a cinematic style to yeah. his, to his books, which is like translated into uh, movies eventually. I think in the conversations that we're talking about Eisner having with, with uh, Frank Miller, I think both of them came to the conclusion that, cinematic comics aren't the best thing because cinema is limited in a way that comics are not. True. And the best comics make use of what comics can do that movies cannot. So strictly being cinematic is kind of, uh, it's something a lot of people aspire to because they want their, their stuff to read in that way. But you know, the, the skinny panels that he would use to quicken stuff up, the big fat wide ones he would use to slow you down that stuff comes from Eisner and comes from Kirby and comes from some of these people. And I think he just added to it in like shape of panel. And, and that stuff is part of writing. It isn't just part of drawing. Yeah, uh, and yeah. And last things last the, the, you talk about the first person narration, that whole like lucky old man, I can't even climb a rope without my legs. Oh God, this would be a good death, but not good enough. Oh, that internal monologue that he gives to people like Wolverine and Batman and stuff—it's just fantastic, you know. Uh, and I guess Claremont technically gave it to Wolverine, but you know, he, he was basically plotting that book with Frank Miller, the the original Wolverine uh, miniseries. But right. yeah, the, the people that he, and, and Daredevil—he invests them with this inside their mind voice. And when you're with the hero in that fashion, it's not. Oh, the Joker's reaching for stuff. I'd better grab my. It's more personal and more real, and like you're getting their moment-to-moment -moment thoughts, not the stuff that they wrote down in a journal for later. And mm. even when he does delve into that, he does that great. 
when you when you're looking at Batman kind of in Batman Year One, writing down his mission statement for what he wants to do, trying to come up with that. Frank Miller is the writer beyond Alan Moore, beyond Grant Morrison, even any of these guys. Nobody can write Batman's voice first person better than Frank Miller, full stop. I don't think anybody can write first person narration and captions better than Frank Miller, full stop. And all of very com- novel, very novelish uh, uh, addition to comics. Uh, I mean, I think that's why those Sin City books work as well as they do, is that he has that very novelistic. It's a very, it's, you know, Dashiell Hammett, Cormac McCarthy type of voice, for lack of a better way to put it. Hundred percent. Now, let me ask you: since we're since I brought that up, novel, where do you think Neil Gaiman stands in the uh, echelon of comic book writers? Hmm. I think that's a difficult question because, really, especially relative to a lot of the other guys we'll talk about, his comics output is limited. Yeah. You know, it's it's just. I mean, it's it's just Marvel Man. The he was the the second writer on Miracle Man after Alan Moore and all of the endless stuff, you know, cheaply Sandman. Yeah. But I don't really know. I mean, I guess <laughs> and some stuff that he did for Todd McFarlane that eventually turned into a huge legal battle. But that's yep. I think even he would say that's some of his lesser work. Um but yeah, I mean, he's so associated with the Sandman universe. Yeah. And nothing else. So I think we can't put him in uh, in in the running. For, for I don't, greatest, I don't, even though I don't he's know, amazing. Though. Well, that's well, what I mean. I, mean. I don't know. Is that enough? In I, the I, modern yeah. in the modern age, I think it is because of the fact that like Vertigo was like buoyed by Sandman. Like Vertigo being a thing is basically what the uh, the Arkham Asylum graphic novel Sandman stuff. And Doom Patrol for years. That's mm-hmm. what it was. It was like how like uh, MTV used to play Money for Nothing and Your Chicks for Free and Tears <laughs> for Fears all fucking day because there was three music yeah. videos. Yeah. And they were a channel based on three or four fucking music videos. Oh, and, and Bust a Move by Young MC. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, like there, there's these times when like these things can build a company. You know, Wu-Tang yeah. basically making loud records into a real label. You know what I mean? Uh, that That sort of thing. I think that he did that kind of by, and then with all the different artists too, I think that it's Claremont-ish, frankly, even though it didn't last as long, because who the fuck would be on a book for 25 years is like insane. Mm. So uh, he's like, yeah, he's a, whoever Hank, Hank Aaron or, or, or Nolan Ryan of comics. Nobody's ever going to beat those type of records. But as far as somebody being on one book and establishing their whole personality in comics from doing one book, and then being able to do stuff like Eternals later and stuff, which I never really, that's not really my jam. Eternals isn't my jam on any level. So yeah, yes. I didn't really read too much of that stuff. But the stuff that I saw that he did with it, and some of which was adapted for the movie, eh, it's all right. It's trying to storyfy something that didn't really have much story before, you know, or mm. didn't have much script before. It had a lot of story, not very much script. You know what I mean? So I, I give him a lot of credit for establishing a character and being sort of the owner of that character throughout you know you don't see sandman showing up and stuff and being having a bunch of guns you know what i'm saying like what frank miller tried to do with electra make a character for mainstream comics control that character have a gentleman's agreement with the publisher that they'll never publish anything without you writing it he pulled that off i mean that in and of itself is some like neil adams to art 
he's that to writing to me to be able to do that at a major publisher. That's a big fucking deal. It is a big deal. And also if you look at influences, I mean, it's hard to overstate how revolutionary Sandman was not just for sort of bringing the introspective emo voice to mainstream comics, but also the idea that comics really could be novelistic in their monthly form that like every subsequent chapter, it's not a soap opera. It's a novel. Like you're building this grand tapestry of a singular story as opposed to just fleshing out a never ending second act. Yeah. And and world building. Oh, I mean, yeah, the world building also second to none. I think that kind of goes part and parcel with this idea that like, he essentially carved out an entire section of DC comics that he just owned, like Ed was talking about. And I, you know, that is a little bit unparalleled. I don't, I don't know of another writer that sort of achieved both the influence and that singular sort of ownership within, you know, big two publishing. I I, genuinely like, I don't, I don't, unless I'm missing something completely, he kind of is in a class all his own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, right. he really is. And one thing I would like to also, uh, the other guy I was going to bring up earlier, I'm glad, but it's perfect coming off the heels of this guy is Dwayne McDuffie. Oh. Now people, uh, tend to think of him as doing his animation work, which I'll talk about later. Cause it's germane to the comics. Cause it's basically informs a lot of comics for years. I mean, yeah. uh, but he invented the concept of damage control the people that come around and clean up after the superheroes. That's right. He, he invented so many really cool things. He wrote, I think some, he wrote some fantastic four. He wrote some black Panther. He wrote a lot of these weird, these weird interstitial things in the Marvel uh, universe. And I think DC comics as well, that sort of knit together the world. He's like a, like a John Havlicek or somebody, or one of these, like these, uh, these players in the game that like, you'd look up and they got like, 14 points and seven rebounds and four assists, but those were literally the right plays at the right time to win the fucking game. Like, well, that he, me, and yeah. of course, well, he, before, he did static shock and, and milestone. Well, well, he he invented the milestone universe. I'm just, yeah. I, well, we're going to talk about that in a second. I'm talking okay. about just like his contributions to so called yep. big two comics. What were you going to say, Bill? I, I was going to, I was going to kind of bridge that gap is like, really his early career is very similar to somebody like uh, Jerry Conway, who we talked about in the last episode where like, he is not the first name on the tip of your tongue by any means, because he was very much, you know, a bullpen guy who just bounced around. But also you look at Jerry Conway's bibliography and like, he wrote the night that Gwen Stacy died. He wrote Superman versus the amazing Spider-Man. Like he wrote a lot of these seminal things. Um, he created Scarlet Spider. He was still writing Spider-Man up to the 90s, Jerry Conway. So it's like Dwayne McDuffie was one of those guys, just yeah, like yep. a very inventive, solid bullpen writer. But as opposed to then going on to become an editor or just a guy who gets too old for the medium, he went in a totally different direction with you know the clout that he had sort of built up. Yeah. And give, given like lo- looking at the deal that they got with Milestone, I, that's why I made it. Uh, maybe Gaiman made me remember him is because Milestone was published by DC, but not technically owned by them, mm-hmm. which is like amazing. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to like do these books that had nothing to do with that. And obviously, 
people can look at the history of Milestone. There's a bunch of uh, documentaries about it and stuff. But what basically happened was they started fucking with DC too much. Mm. And when you have icons that an extra Superman, it's stupid. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it just, it just, it's not good. Nightwing kicking it with Static Shock is not cool. It's just not. And I don't want to do no separate but equal shit. That that world wasn't the, the black world. It was the world where p- there were trans characters, gay characters in the 90s, by the way. Trans yeah. characters, gay characters, uh, non-binary fools, all types of people were, do- were doing stuff in those books. There was so much representation, Asian representation, uh, Asian characters main li- headlining their own books. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck was doing that? Shang-Chi done got canceled 27 fucking times. You know what I mean? That the, They were doing a lot of really progressive stuff and not progressive for progressive sake. It was just these people get to talk finally. And like yep. the Iron Man of your world being a black dude who is a genius, but who is being exploited by an Elon Musk. Like these type of topics, you know what I'm saying? Weren't being explored in comics at all. And he brought him into superhero comics without being preachy or none of that bullshit. And it created this whole super cool universe. And then he fucking starts writing the best cartoons about superheroes ever, ever with the justice league justice league unlimited blah, blah. i mean his episodes are the best and all the best of all that he has a direct hand in he wrote uh, one of the last things he wrote before his unfortunate uh, untimely death uh the uh, all-star superman movie mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying he yep. damn that motherfucker was great with the dc characters i mean he really found his niche with those dc characters he he made them sing yeah, and I know we're talking about uh, Big Two and all that stuff, but Ben Ten is also like, like, yeah, right. No, one hundred percent. I mean, I, yeah. I think I think it's really worth noting that you know, comics guys had matriculated into animation before. Jack Kirby famously did it. Alex Toth was a guy who came out of comics, became big in animation. Those guys were worked more as artists, though, where there's more of a one to one apples to apples translation to make. Dwayne McDuffie, that's why I say he really zigged where nobody else, where everybody else had zagged before him, like coming up just as a good company writer who contributed a lot, but never was really a breakout for him to then whatever it was, step into that role of being one of the founders of Milestone and then building on that by becoming one of the architects of the DC animated universe, which then turned into an even bigger career in animation than just translating comics. Like it's staggering to think of where that guy would be now if he was Mm -hmm. still with us, because I could 100% see him occupying, you know, a Kevin Feige esque role for DC or something of that nature. Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's how good he was. And I think it's more, it's more a consequence of his ambition in other, sort of like Neil Gaiman, which is again, a good comparison to draw his ambition in other venues. In addition to his um, completely untimely death, that keeps him from really being one of those names that immediately pops to head when you're talking about greatest writers, but like he's phenomenal. Dude, there's a world, there is a world pan across the New York skyline. The Twin Towers still exist. Mm. Hand down to a bodega. Who's getting a chopped cheese? Dwayne McDuffie. Who's he going to go meet? James Gunn. Yeah. They're working out the exact architecture for the next 15 years of DC movies. 100%. And it's slick as fuck. And it's very, has a lot of fidelity to the characters and who they are. And it's beautiful. I, yeah. I, I want to go to there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's get a dimensional portal open. Let's do it. <laughs> Again, we are we're in the darkest timeline and it cannot be <laughs> It really can't at this point. It can, we have reality show presidents, we got an idiocracy, it's we got a lot of wild. wild shit going on, dude. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. so who who um who else who do you guys want to talk about as uh, I mean, it this seems like a logical time to bring up Alan Moore so that we can get to Grant sure. Morrison. You know, and not like that's just our, I, I, our attention, but I'm just saying these are founding fathers of the British invasion. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Sure. Um. Uh. Yeah. Let's do Alan Moore. I. I. I have somebody I want to bring up at some point, but I don't know if it counts. So, well, it might be a. It might be a. What's the word again? Uh, honorable, honorable mention. mention. Honorable mention at some point. Well, um, Alan Moore. I mean, I think more than anything in the context of history. Alan Moore really is the bridge, I would argue, even more than Frank Miller between the classic comics and modern comics. You know, yeah. Frank Miller did his part, no question, between Dark Knight Returns, Sin City, Batman Year One. But you look at Alan Moore's output from Swamp Thing through Watchmen, even into some of the shit he was doing in the 90s where he was essentially just whoring himself out, for lack of a way to put it, to all the image guys and essentially just reinventing everything that they shat out in the early days of image. Like, mm -hmm. Alan Moore... It, it goes without saying that Alan Moore is one of the top writers of all, times in, of all time in comics, but more than that, Alan Moore redefined what a comic writer should be. Like what they mm. should bring to the medium. Yeah. 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 I think, and also uh, one of the main things I think, you look at something like uh, a seminal story, which was uh, done in animation. Um, what the, uh, what do you get? The guy who has everything or whatever. Or the man who you has know? everything. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, Superman gets a gift. The gift is a fucking parasite thing that jumps on him. Superman goes through all kinds of dreams of him, of Krypton never blowing up and him having a son and all this different shit. And it's like, and meanwhile, Mongol is trashing the fucking the uh, Mongol is trashing the fuck out of the uh, Fortress of Solitude, and Batman and Robin and his little pants mm -hmm. and Wonder Woman are getting their shit kicked in by Mongol, and Superman is standing right there in a trance and can't help them. That's a story for your ass. I yep. I just think that's very modern, and that shit came out like early. It's like it's I think it's before Swamp Thing even. Yeah, and I mean, it's a that's great a way to handle Superman. Well, and it, it, so that's a pre-crisis comic that came out, I want to say, in like 84, 85. So that's still technically Bronze Age Superman. And what I think is really interesting about that is on paper, that premise on Superman's birthday, he gets gifted an alien plant that sends him into a dream world. That could have been a goofy 1960s comic. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there's nothing that Wayne Boring could have drawn that comic. Mm -hmm. However, in Alan Moore's hands, it becomes this incredibly complex exploration of Superman's psychology coupled with a, a, a concurrent story that feels very like threatening and high stakes and for lack of a better way to put it, like sweaty palms. Like how the fuck are they going to get out of this? And I, I want to just say that like nobody had really done that. Right. How do we take the, the classic goofy conventions of what superheroes can be? You know, Claremont's over here kind of, I don't want to say dragging superheroes down, but turning superheroes into a soap opera in a way that 
you know, they're having space adventures, but it, it all just feels like people doing people shit with bright, colorful costumes. Somehow there's something about what Alan Moore's doing where it's like, no, 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 we're going to revel in all the tropes of comics and we're not going to turn them into like relatable stuff. It, it's almost like we're going to mythologize this goofy shit. It's that idea mm -hmm. of like comics as a modern mythology. Alan Moore like lays the template for that. I mean, I, I honestly, I believe that, but that's why I bring him up. I think that's why back in the days, definitely people thought it was a neck and neck with him and Frank Miller. Cause obviously that year of 86 where mm -hmm. Watchmen and dark Knight returns come out, you know, mm -hmm. more or less uh, uh, the, their concurrent sort of things. And I think it's people feel like that's the time that comics were like, you know what? Maybe Batman and Superman don't always get along and have a good buddyhood. Maybe Superman would be a lapdog for the man because he's always trying to be good buddy buddy with people. Whereas Batman is a damn human and knows that humans suck and shouldn't be trusted. So why should Superman bow to humans? That's revolutionary thinking, frankly. Revolutionary. And then you look at what uh, uh, you know Alamore does. Alamore takes heroes who are basically just people in stupid costumes running around. And then he introduces a real superhero to that world. And we see the jealousy and the shittiness and the avarice that comes out of seeing this guy who's a living battery. So guess what? 10 companies arise to try to make batteries out of this guy. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. it just, and, and people start plotting on how to kill this guy. The smartest person in the world instantly starts plotting on how to kill this guy. Very Lex Luthor Superman, if you really think about it. Oh, very much so. You know, I, I also think it's worth mentioning, though, that like Watchmen is not I, Watchmen is of a piece with a lot of Moore's other work. And it's not just about like trying to skewer tropes, because if you look at something like his Swamp Thing run, that's also taking a very classic comic book set like monster comics have a long rich history and the idea of like i used to be a man and now i'm cursed with this horrible power is like again a very silver age even pre-silver age idea in comics and then more comes along and just that question that he asks in the anatomy lesson of like what if swamp thing isn't a man cursed to live among plants what if Swamp Thing is a plant cursed to think it's a man? Mm. It's just such a weird, like, oh, shit. And then the fact that he takes that premise and sort of explores all of the weird implications of it. It's like he doesn't turn it into a real-world exploration, but he takes the fantasy seriously enough to say, this has long-ranging implications on the world. Yeah. And like he does that in Swamp Thing. He does that with Superman. He does that in Watchmen. And that sort of thinking was completely alien to mainstream, not only mainstream comics, but I think comics as a medium. Just that the idea of like, how can you take superpowers seriously was just such a weird question to ask, and Moore did it so masterfully. Shit, Miracle Man, another good example of that. 100%. And I, I, I think people are chasing that dragon to this day. I, I would mm. agree. I, I remember it, it makes me think of something that Neil Gaiman, uh, you know, I'm not trying to brag when I took the Neil Gaiman Masterclass during the pandemic because I was uh, <laughs> freaking out and I needed to learn stuff. Uh, but uh, one of the things he mentioned to do as like a, 
as like an exercise is to take a traditional story uh, uh, and just turn it around, do something different with it, look at it from a different angle and and that'll give you an idea and then really analyze it and and try to explore the depths of it. And just as like a very simple example, he was like, what if the witch who put those kids in the oven was the correct one? Sure. Yeah. Because these kids were going to, I don't know, take over the world and kill everyone. I, you know, just as a very simple thing. And it's just like, I, and I feel like Alan Moore was thinking on multiple levels whenever he looked at a subject. And, and that's, that was amazing because it, it did the thing that we love about, that we love now about comics, which is take it seriously. Like, just like you mentioned, just take it, like, think of it as a real storytelling uh, uh, option and, and, and explore it instead of being like, the beast being like, yes, I have joined the West Coast Avengers because of my amazing skills. We now really explore the depths of a character in a weird situation and and what that could all mean. So, yeah. And I, I also want to call attention to Moore's kind of post-Dark Age um, because he's so often, between all those titles I just mentioned, like associated with, you know, the grim and gritty era of comics but the work he does when he sort of reclaims the majesty of superpowers, for lack of a better way to put it, from Jesus. I mean, just the litany of... T so from Supreme to 1963 to Top 10 to Tom Strong, like all that shit that he's doing through the 90s into the 2000s is absolute gold, is very celebrational... Uh, are celebrative of superpowers and superheroes, but he's still doing that thing where it's like, you think everybody's examined every facet of this setup and somehow I'm going to find a way to get underneath it and look at it from this totally bizarre angle where it's the thing you've seen before, but you've never seen it like this. It's like Alan Moore has this weird writerly ability to like, Put you on in he like takes the drone up so that you can see the ship from above. And it's an angle that nobody ever looks at that ship from because it's like a so impossible for humans. You know, it, it's a strained metaphor, but it's like that's his real gift as a writer. Yeah, I, th I think it's also about like uh, like you said that just finding even if it's not a, a macro view of stuff. Sometimes you go super micro. Like mm -hmm. there'll be like these little problems. Uh, he'll I think he when he looks at what world he's built, he explores all the nooks and crannies. I think that's the simplest way for me to say it. Like uh, there's an issue of top ten where a guy goes over to check on his mom. His mom has rats, and the rats are superhuman. And so he brings over a superhuman cat with eye beams to try to chase these rats. And he's having this problem with his mom. And meanwhile, yeah. there's a murder mystery. There's somebody murdering people in the sewers and the other characters are, it's like Hill street blues in a city where everybody has superpowers. I must, I must fucking emphasize that every single human in this city has superpowers. And these are the cops that patrol this city. If you had enough budget, that would be the best show, the best movie, the best anything. They have sex problems. They have – there's a dog that's, like, attracted to the human ladies. It's like, oh, God, this sucks. I can't tell – I can't – there's a lady who walks around naked with body paint on her. And the dog, 
who's a dog in an exosuit and he's a super smart dog, but his dog appendages don't allow him to do stuff. So he puts himself in a robot exosuit to be able to do tasks and stuff. And there's a lady who's been walking around with body paint on her naked body. Her, her power is to shift the body paint around and make projections, whatever. She's been walking around naked the whole time, but she's clothed because she has colors going over, but dogs are colorblind. And he couldn't like tell her that he's been looking at her naked. And then when she figures it out that he can see her naked, he's like, but I'm a dog. I'm not attracted to chicks. Well, that's weird. And he's like, I totally am. I totally like you. With chicks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, who thinks of that? Like who yeah. thinks of any of that and puts it inside a Hill street blues setting in a superhero story? Who thinks of that? Alan fucking Moore, man. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, and it's crazy because he's worked on mainstream stuff too. Well, I guess, mainstream-ish, young bloods, wild cats, et cetera, et cetera. Some stuff that he actually probably doesn't like if we brought that up while talking to him. His wildcat shit is the shit. It's good. Dude, when he when he took over Wildcats, not, not to labor it, but like they were just the scrubs. The the yeah. C and D team, a bunch of fucking bums. And he had such carte blanche to make them whatever and to deal with. So he he had a character dealing with the legacy of being the grifter's brother. I'm like, grifter, get the fuck out of here. There's no pathos here. And he found some. He mined some pathos out of somebody dealing with growing up in the shadow of grifter, who's a cardboard fucking cutout himself. You know what I mean? Grifter and, uh, wishes he was as cool as Gambit. That's all I'll say right, about Grifter. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, God, God damn. Now, that's brutal. That is brutal. And in the parlance of this podcast, that was a body slam from the top rope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, Grifter. I didn't I didn't mean it completely. <laughs> and I know we're not we're not doing that, you know, remember that time, but the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh oh, yeah, shit. Yeah. I, yeah, I, dude. That's a fucking great goddamn comic book. Yes, it is, dude. Yes, Tom it is. Strong. Tom Strong. Are you fucking kidding me? Promethea, dude. Dude, dude we didn't right? mention Promethea. I was about to. I was about to talk about Promethea because Promethea, like I said, you could w- listen to our. We've we've mentioned it on several episodes before. Just succinctly, Promethea is about the power of dreaming stuff into existence. A superhero being able to be you because you believe you are them or you believe in them enough and you become that superhero. It's like all the best parts of that Billy Batson shit, but like a thousand billion times more mature. And it's, it's to the point where me likening it to Billy Batson is on a lot of levels super disrespectful. But I'm telling you, it's the same archetype. But Alan Moore did it so much better, you would never even consider them to be together because it's such a more complex concept. And the thing that's great about Promethea, too, is like Alan Moore has long had this reputation, probably self-cultivated, of being like the eccentric wizard of comics. Like he's he's referred to himself as a wizard. And by all accounts, he practices some form of magic. But he is also a very anti-religious person. And so in Promethea, he explicitly reconciles those things that people have long criticized him for of like, you know. He's a pretentious twat because he talks about magic, but it's like he doesn't even really believe it. It's all a joke to him. Like he lays it all out for you in Promethea that like his concept of magic is really more about the human potential for creativity and the potential to tap into things that are beyond ourselves and how that empowers you as a human being. And then he also manages to turn that into a kick-ass adventure story with beautiful art, by the way. Um, it's just incredible that like, it's a set, like that 
book is essentially a response to personal criticisms of him, and he turns it into one of the all-time great comics ever written. It's hard to go anywhere from Alan Moore. I mean, I think the obvious next person to talk about is Grant Morrison, but I do Mm -hmm. think we should, maybe before we get there, um, let's linger in the 90s a little bit because okay. Grant Grant Morrison sort of, or excuse me, Alan Moore takes us into the modern age. Alan Moore and Frank Miller take us into the modern age. And there are a couple sort of mainstream practitioner of modern age comics that I'd like us all to weigh in on. And the first is still a guy who's doing super high profile work today. And that is Mark Wade. You know what? He was, he was definitely going to come up. Um, he is... There, there are people who will consider him some sort of, uh, and non-pejoratively, a Jerry Conway, you know, level uh, guy because of the fact that he is one of those fanboys who came in and he just love, love, loves these characters or reveres all the old guys. And I think he's one of the, I think if I'm not mistaken, he's one of these guys who uh, used to like kick it at Kirby's feet or something. There's, there's, there's a group of guys who used to literally go over to Jack Kirby's house as little kids in the 70s. And like watch him draw some of those issues and stuff. I think a couple, a lot of those guys have become comic professionals. I think if I'm not mistaken, he was one of those, but uh, he's that type of guy regardless. And, but dude, irredeemable, man, irredeemable is so beyond what a so-called jobber would do in my personal opinion. Sure. Yep. Hey man, beyond, beyond that, that dude made the flash readable. Possibly mm-hmm. the only, possibly the only writer in comics history to ever make the Flash readable, <laughs> right? And and what he he did something. If it wasn't Tower of Babel, it was one of those stories that we commonly mis misattribute to Morrison. You know, in that run it with was, Howard Porter and stuff. Yeah, it was Tower of Babel. It was it, he wrote the original story where Batman had contingency plans for the entire Justice League. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. That's what I'm saying. Like Mark Wade, you know is a jobber but yes. also but also mark it's wade great. was like the editor-in-chief of boom comics for a while mark wade was involved what was that one it was like uh um cross gen mark wade mm-hmm. I, was like the editor-in-chief of cross gen which was like another startup kind of fly-by-night thing in the early 2000s you know, he's done a bunch of work outside the big two and i think he sort of gets lumped in with jobber writers just because he is the ultimate fanboy at heart and he is this guy who has an encyclopedic knowledge of the legion of superheroes and all that but he's also a guy who can work within the superhero writing formula extremely well and also has had success breaking outside of it yeah and just really quickly just to let you know how dope mark wade is i think he's in a group with like kurt busick as mm, well another guy worth talking about you know what i'm saying these guys who like kurt busick wrote um avengers forever which introduced the concept of immortus doing some shit and somebody like rick jones getting enough power to counterman his plan and rick jones going through history and picking a whole group of avengers from different eras future avenger lady is in there uh, uh captain america from the 50s who's very compl- conflicted is in there all these different people he picked and and Hawkeye's there for no reason, you know, all these different people <laughs> get picked and it's like, I, he just really plays with the toys. Well, you know what I'm saying? So he, he's in there, but like Mark Wade, ah, he, he and Kurt Busick are way better than somebody like Jeff Loeb. If we're yeah. just talking about 
like these writers that get always brought up with this great comic book writer conversation, those two stand on the shoulders of Jeff Loeb and take a piss. I know Jeff Loeb is good. I know he's had some personal tragedies. I know he's had a lot of success. I know he's had a lot of success outside comics. He is a brilliant writer by all accounts. But he's not fucking with Kurt Busiek or Mark Wade at I'd all. I'd agree. And, and look, here's the thing. I, I those, those are honestly the three guys that I want us, wanted us to talk about before we got to Grant Morrison. So well done, Ed. We were on the exact same wavelength. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I do want to bring up Mark Wade's other major credit from the 90s, Kingdom Come. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. Possibly sort of the greatest graphic novel style story at, since Dark Knight Returns. Like, I, I if you're there's, looking at. There's plenty you, of people who say it's the greatest superhero graphic novel of all time. There's plenty of people who said it. I'm just saying, man, like that, that shit. I just reread Kingdom Come probably a month ago, and that shit holds up, man. It just does. Mm-hmm. And and on top of that, Mark Wade has also written a ton of great, maybe not as um, influential as something like Kingdom Come, but has written a shit ton of great comics for Marvel. You know, had that amazing run on Daredevil mm-hmm. and and Black Widow, both with Chris Somney. Um, mm-hmm. The Daredevil run, I think, had a couple of, of really great artists. Maybe Marcos Martin was in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, you know, wrote a bunch of really well-regarded Fantastic Four comics where we started to get into things, you know, like the Council of Reeds and the multiverse and all this shit that is, you know, really sort of defined where the Fantastic Four is gone in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. I mean, this dude is 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 a heavy hitter when you look at big two comics. No, you're right. Yeah, and one thing I would like to say really quickly about the big two, just I think sure. the future state of the big two, if you're comparing the futures that I've seen from each company, DC futures are sick. Yeah. Like the DC futures are so much sicker than the Marvel futures. I think the Marvel futures are really caught up in dystopian shit. Whereas like the DC futures are still majestic into the future. And I think that's Mark Wade's influence or whether Mark, Mark Wade keeping up a grand tradition that was started with like characters like the Huntress from earth Two, and sure. you know, the fu- future, you know, uh, the, even to a certain extent, the, the league of superheroes revering these present day superheroes as their heroes, you know, and the myths and legends that they are stuff like that. I don't know, man, the, the any type of future state DC stuff really gets me excited. And I don't know that the future of Marvel gets me. I don't want to fuck Luke Cage's dumb daughter's book in 2052 or whatever. I don't give a shit. I don't yeah. like that, you know, but like DC futures seem to be really cool. And kingdom come is one of the best visions of the DC future that there's ever been. Everybody's riffing on it when they do a DC future. Completely. And well, you, looking- don't, you don't like ghost rider 2099. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Ghost rider 2099, <laughs> Spider-Man 2009, even Spider-Man 2099 as dope as he is, isn't as cool as the 15th coolest character in kingdom come. No, you're right. You know what I'm saying? Kingdom Come has a. It's what, the only thing I hate about Kingdom Come in regards to like, uh, I th- I think when you look at how he how Alex Ross depicts everybody, I I personally don't like the human frailty of the main character. I don't like the fact that they emphasize much like their work on Marvels. Interesting that that we're weak and they are legends and we bask in their stuff and we can have 
problems with God or whatever. But in our world, you want to know who God is. He's punching Batman in the face over there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? As far as like direct impact on your life in the DC universe. That's one of the reasons why that book is so effective is it's it's not just some goofy guy, that that old man preacher that we follow through the story and he's next to all these super, super heroic events. I love it for it, but it makes me feel like mortal. Like I read comics to feel immortal, to be part of those guys. But that book reminds you that you're not and they are and they have all this shit going on. And I think it's like kind of beautiful in that way. And obviously Alex Ross's Wonder Woman is just... I think pretty fantastic. She's got a big thick neck. Oh, do you like you know? that? <laughs> <laughs> no, she's just she's just she's just like taller than Superman kind of. Yep. She's uh and and even they they do a little bit of the weight of age on her and Clark, just mm-hmm. a tiny bit. Like Alex I mean and it, I think that's in the script as well, you know. So I, I'll just give credit to to Wade on that, you know, as well as Alex Ross. It's just a really beautiful DC future. It's kind of unbeatable and Mark Wade did that. So yeah, I'm glad we gave him props. Yeah. By well, the way, this is obviously going to be a three or four part series. Um, <laughs> before, uh, I do want to bring up. Oh, did you have more to say before I well, bring? Them I just wanted to, guy? to shift focus back over to Kurt Busiek because oh, yeah. Alan Alex Ross is sort of the common denominator there. Um, Kurt Busiek did Marvels with Alex Alex Ross. Yeah, that's right. That's, oh, that's right. Right. But Kurt, Kurt Busiek also did Astro City with Alex Ross. Mm-hmm. Astro City is one of the great. I mean. I think it's between top 10 and Astro city. But like, when you look at the idea of let's populate an entire world with superheroes and see what that looks like. I mean, Kurt Busiek was doing that. I think the first Astro city book came out in 94, maybe like right after him and and Ross did marbles Mm -hmm. and that thing's still going strong and has been like a stalwart in the comics industry ever since. Um, And Busiek also, wrote that JLA Avengers crossover. And Busiek also has done a lot of great work for DC, maybe less heralded than the stuff that he's done for Marvel. But like Kurt Busiek's another guy, I think, you know, his the the heyday of his career was sort of in this weird, you know, 10 to 12 years between, you know, the the the, the early 90s to the mid 2000s, but he was on fire when he was at his peak. And he did yeah, the I, Kang uh, Dynasty too, by the way, which is mm-hmm. oh, Kang is like a, a, a Kang is largely a Kurt Busiek uh, invent, not an invention, but like a lot of the mythology around Kang came mm-hmm. from Busiek. Yeah, yeah, and he uses them extensively in Avengers Forever because obviously all the I mean, dude, all this Kang Dynasty shit—that's Kurt Busiek shit. All yeah. the stuff that they're doing for the movie is Kurt Busiek shit, basically. Yep. Um, by the way, also Thunderbolts was Kurt Busiek, which is another movie coming up soon. Dude, I mean, yeah, he's he might even get a special thanks, huh? And they'll send a limo crisis, which is I mean, all the TV. Well, I mean, and the th- the thing about um, Kurt Busiek also with Astro City is Astro City is another of these like uh, whenever you do your version of a superhero universe, you just run the risk of being some also ran piece of shit. You, you it is your task not to make characters as compelling as Batman and Wonder Woman and Superman, because you literally can't and you Mm -hmm. never will, no matter who you are. So once you throw that away, make a universe where I want to read this shit 
every month. And he did that. There's this weird Jack of the Box character. He sucks, but he's awesome. He mm-hmm. sucks. He sucks. He's got a jack. He's got a jack in the box, and he busts shit out of his jack in the box. He, he's like a Joker slash Creeper slash um, Extendo leg stick stilt man Joker kind of guy, and he's a hero. And he's got a big red I... nose and a bozo wig and all that shit. And guess what? <laughs> he's sick as fuck. He's a legacy character that passes that down to his kids. He's a fucking like put upon like Black Inventor. He's he's a lot of shit. And something as dumb as that, he put so much pathos in it and made you care about that character. Because in that world, that is the Batman of that world. A weird Joker amalgam that jumps around and makes jokes. Well, dude, here's the thing. If you do a one-to-one between um, Irredeemable and Astro City, the one thing I'll say against Irredeemable is like the Plutonian is dope as shit. And Mm -hmm. Max Damage, who starred in Incorruptible... Is yes. dope as shit. Yes. But a lot of those other sort of analog original heroes that Wade comes up with kind of suck. Like, yeah. He's got a black guy who says, Oh, I'm a black guy with electrical powers. Yeah, I know. And I'm like, No, motherfucker. No. You could have done something different with that character. No company mandate. Tony Isabella's grave isn't telling you to make this motherfucker <laughs> have lightning powers. You did that on your own, goddammit. Hundred yeah. percent. Meanwhile, over in Astro City, like the Samaritan is Superman, but he's empowered and stranded on Earth because he time travels, and then he gets uh, an arch nemesis who's also a time traveler, and so their battles are constantly rewriting reality, and they're the only ones who know it. He's got a Batman character called the Confessor, who's like Batman, but he has an explicit Catholic motif where he's wearing like a glowing cross across his chest <laughs> and he's punishing criminals with it. Like there's all this juicy shit. He's got um, another character who's like an Iron Man type character, um, but is also, I think, some sort of like a time traveler. And it, it, uh, I can't I can't remember a lot of the specifics. All I know is that those original characters in Astro City are so much doper than the original characters in Irredeemable. Just worth saying. Just worth well, the, saying. He also made, like, just real quick, he made a story about this um, metal man. And he's just like, I'm a metal man. That's what, I, I'm just a metal man. I can't necessarily throw Volkswagens or anything, but, you know, if you throw me down some stairs, I'll get up and be like, what's your problem, bub? You know what I mean? Like, mm. and this metal man got into, like, a Sin City-esque murder mystery that he had to solve and it was the way you do luke cage it was the way you do luke cage and that's kurt Busick. you know what i'm saying I'm, i think i'm the only motherfucker who, who sees that obviously but it is you know, just this metal man not too super powered can't jump tall buildings but like i'm tough and i'm gonna get to the bottom of it that should be how they do luke cage stories but no he's got the wreckers fucking crowbar and he's hitting thor in the nuts and all this bullshit he should be in the hood solving people's crimes. Solve 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 grandma's crime. You know, you know what I'm saying? And and they get into a thing way bigger than you. Solve a grandma's crime, then you end up having to fight rocks on or something. But the point is you get it over your head. Busick did that beautifully in a lot of different that jack-o'-lantern character, this metal guy I'm talking about, a lot of the tertiary smaller characters in that world that weren't supermen and super gods had right. really cool adventures. So yeah, Kurt Busick is up there, man. All right, cool. And I want to now. I need to read Astro City because I just realized I don't think I've read Astro City. So uh, on the list, 
going to go Absolutely. pick it up it, from my local comic book shop. Absolutely worth it. And and it's funny because I don't think Busiek or Wade are going to make the top of the list for greatest writer of all time. But in a head-to-head between them, I kind of give it to Busiek because I think both guys do a great job of embracing all that is great about classical comics and modernizing it. But Busiek manages to infuse more of a subversive edge while also making things feel very regal and classical. And I like that about him. So that's sort of our tangent for the greats of the 90s. Well, nice. and I got one more tangent for the great of the 90s, which I think is important to bring up. And I don't know if he counts as more of an artist, but he's definitely a writer as well, as that's Mike Mignola. Mm. Does he yeah, count he, as a greatest writer? I mean, he made Hellboy. He be a uh, BRPD. Oh, I mean, he's been writing that shit since day one. And like, even the stuff he's, he doesn't draw, he's still writing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and he tells great stories. They're good stories. Well, since he took over, technically, since he took over from uh, John Byrne, who was doing scripts for not not necessarily the plots, but he was doing the actual scripting for the first couple oh, yeah, of Hellboys. Yeah. And then, of course, Mike Mignola was like, all right, get the fuck out of here. Wasn't it get, only get, get out of here. Destruction that Byrne did? Or did he do more? I think it was Seated Destruction. Yeah, it was Seated Destruction and maybe some uh, like short you know, stories. Okay that would show up in backups or something like that. But yes, he, he wrote, he wrote uh, a fair amount of that early stuff. And then when it was just really time to get down, Mike Mignola was like, I got this, I, I get it. Uh, yeah. So I, I think he's up there, but it's like one of those guys, like it's like Will Eisner and, and he, I would put them more in like greatest cartoonists. And I'd also put maybe Frank Miller in greatest cartoonists. Cause like, honestly, Frank Miller scripts, I like them but I like the ones he draws better than the ones he writes. Even like something like hard boiled, hard boiled is a great book, but Jeff Darrow drawing the shit out of some stuff that doesn't make no goddamn sense. Really? <laughs> That's fair, dude. I, yeah, I mean, here's what I'll say for Mignola. I think Mignola is the poster child for sort of somebody who takes all of their keenest interests and turns that into a hell of a writing career. Because by like, for all intents and purposes, Mignola is just fascinated with folklore. And specifically like European folklore. Also, I guess, you know, uh, uh, Native American folklore. And the things that he is able to do by just infusing a lot of these myths and legends. Or, you know, combining a lot of these myths and legends with each other is phenomenal. And like the inventiveness and and the mood and the tone and everything that he brings to his work is great. I just don't know that he has the range or necessarily like the thematic weight behind a lot of his work that would put him in the running for like greatest of all time. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad we brought him up though. And, and I think that pretty much, can you guys think of anybody else nineties wise that I've got, I've got one that I think is worth talking about, and that okay. is Jeff Smith, um, who I think is our first true indie guy. But Jeff Smith wrote Bone. After Bone, he wrote Razzle. And to be honest with oh, and he also did the uh, Shazam Monster Society of Evil. Mm-hmm. I know he's written other comics. I haven't read them. But just between those three comics, that dude is fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and like he is another guy who's a cartoonist. He draws all of his own comics, and like that's a huge part of his appeal. 
But if we're talking about cartoonists who can fucking get down as writers, Jeff Smith is, I would, I would put him in the same league as like Frank Miller, Will Eisner, like as a writer, probably not as an artist. He's not as, he's not as amazing as a Will Eisner and a, and a Frank Miller, but in terms of those guys who do it all, he's every bit the writer that I think a Frank Miller or Will Eisner is. Yeah, I'm I'm really into that. I'm also into as we round out this episode, uh, we're gonna obviously get to all your postmodern favorites, the Grant, the Grant Morrison's and stuff next time. But like, I think it's fair. I think this is the Jobber episode, honestly. Yeah, I think this is the job, the so-called well, Jobber dude, episode to no, show how dope so-called Jobbers can be. I mean, you know what this really is. This is the 90s episode. This is talking about the writers who were doing great work at a time when everybody thought comics were only about the artists. Yeah, that's everything, true. Everything from Game and Sandman to Alan Moore's late stage work to everything we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes or so, that's what this is. Right. And I think a nice capper on this is somebody who literally fought against the artists taking over. Oh, I know. And was talking a about. big, was a big fucking got into a big kerfuffle with, uh, with Todd McFarlane, the big tete a tete going back and forth. And that is Peter, David, Peter, Peter, David, Peter, David, oh, man, shit. what you think of as the Hulk is Peter, David, full stop. It's either Herb, Trim- Herb Trimpy and Marie Severin, another uh, artist writer that we haven't talked about, but she was seminal in comics, Marie Severin, huge deal. Uh, I think she was an inker and she wrote some stuff, but Mary Severin is awesome. You're, you're thinking of old ass, a me dumbass green guy comics, or you're thinking about the Peter David comics. If you're, if you have any conception of the Hulk. And I think that's a huge deal. He's like the Chris Claremont of the Hulk. Yeah. Well, and, and if I'm not mistaken, didn't he also step in and start writing X Factor concurrent with Claremont after maybe Louise Simonson? Like he I know he was writing some of the X books there in the early nineties as yeah, well. Yeah, he was he was he was helping out in the X office and he wrote the X Factor stories that are the best ones. The the Larry Stroman and Peter David is the X Factor team besides Wheezy and Walt. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, dude, he just he really understood superheroes, as we've talked about the episode where um, uh, uh, Pietro, uh, i.e. Uh, Quicksilver, is talking to um, Doc Sampson about, you know, why he's such an asshole. He's explaining that, like, my whole life is stuck behind slow, f- dull witted people all day because I'm so fast. And that's why I'm so impatient. And like, fuck, you got to understand where I'm coming from. That's Peter David getting into his a little bit Alan Moore bag. And I'm not trying to say that too hyperbole. You know, there's a lot of people who could jump 40 inches. that don't make them Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. but that sort of like, let's take a second to look at what it would be like to be this sort of superhero. And he does that with all the whole X factor team. We get to find out that strong guy is all misshapen because he didn't really know how to release the kinetic energy. So it just destroyed his body and made him have a little head. He finally learned after trial and error how to be sort of a misshapen piece of shit that looks like that forever instead of constantly bulging and blowing up. Like, that's a weird life to live. And he's in constant pain, and that's why he makes all these jokes and shit. Like, he just adds these little little thread layers like a real, true, beautiful jobber. Every issue helps you to understand the characters a little bit more and adds a little pathos. Yeah. 
he also, you know, was responsible for some of the most readable DC comics of the nineties while Mark mm-hmm. Wade was doing the flash. Um, Peter David was the guy who turned Aquaman into essentially the Jason Momoa version of Aquaman. Mm-hmm. That was Peter David. And also he was writing that weird Supergirl take where she was a protoplasmic entity from another dimension. <laughs> yeah. And he turned her into some sort of extra dimensional angel being. I could not describe to you that story, but I know <laughs> he took an absolutely ridiculous premise for a character who should not have been that thing and gave it real pathos. And not, not only that, a real ending actually told like a full story up until that character's death uh, in DC comics. So yeah, I mean, he's not, he's not Alan Moore, but in the tradition of guys like Wade Busiek, um, he's, he's doing some really interesting things at a time when people weren't paying enough attention to the writers. Yeah, and he also did some of my favorite stuff, uh, Multiple Man, guy I've brought up a bazillion times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, his contributions, yeah. 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 Just, I, I always think of him, I believe he wrote a lot of the Joe Quesada issues of X Factor. Um, yep. Yeah. And that was stuff that I read really early in my comics reading. And I've talked about it before, but it's like encountering X-Men comics that weren't drawn by Jim Lee were, was very startling to my, uh, you know, third grade brain. And it was finding some of those Joe Quesada X factor comics that I finally was like, Oh, this is interesting to look at. I can get into this. And I believe most of those were written by Peter David. So that was like my first introduction to Peter David's writing. And they were great. They were great comics. And just not to put too fine a point on it with the work in the Hulk, because obviously look, I'm just going to say this. Making the Flash cool is a Herculean feat. Making the Hulk cool is, yeah, it's a Herculean feat as well. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's it's it, it's it's really hard to make the Hulk cool. And he did it as best as anybody's literally ever done it, full stop. That's why I revere him so much, because honestly, I was a Hulk reader. And it could have been really hard. And I've, I, got, I got the app that will not be named. And I go back and read the other issues of the Hulk, and they are a fucking slog, man. They're really a slog. When you start establishing an actual um, uh, supporting cast that can actually interact with the guy, it's not not the supporting cast isn't just bring me pictures of the Hulk or whatever. Bring me the bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. You know, it's not just some asshole who wants to kill the Hulk and he has the army at his behest, and then nothing. It is like Betty is in there as somebody who occasionally goes on the run with him, but kind of can't is occasionally used as bait to draw him out. Occasionally takes agency on her own to go see her husband because she wants to. There's all these different layers to her character. There's domestic violence stuff. Like he turned into the Hulk around her and kind of smacked her around inadvertently. And it was like, Mm -hmm. okay, you still got to deal with the fact that you did some of the shit your daddy did. Some of that Mm -hmm. trauma that's in you from your dad, you did that to your woman. But now nah, it's kind of different because I'm a Hulk. Really? Is it? Were yeah, you really different. watching out for her? Were you really taking as much care as you could have? You know what I'm saying? And the Hulk having to like reconcile with Betty. Like, I'm sorry I smacked you up on accident. I'm, I really am. And maybe it wasn't an accident because, you know, psychology says there are no accidents. I've been talking to Leonard Sampson. Uh, he tells mm. me there's no accidents. You know what I'm saying? And the Hulk yeah. having to make up with his chick. That's not his chick. But she knows he's in there. 
So they have this quasi romantic relationship. Like, you know, it's crazy. It's good stuff. It just falls off when he starts like getting a fucking alt-right haircut and using guns and shit and wearing armor. I'm like, what yeah, the fuck happened? Joining the Pantheon. Yeah, the yeah. Pantheon. Yes, they had a big car. They had a car even the Hulk could ride around in. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I mean, they probably was, sold toys. That's, I mean, yeah. I don't know. That's that's some of the stuff that I think keeps Peter David from really being on that elite level. But yeah, you're yeah. right, Ed, to like point out that, I mean, he was bringing in complicated issues of psychology and really trying to sort of modernize and adultize something like the Hulk in a lot of the same ways that Alan Moore was approaching titles, you know, in his throughout most of the eighties, I just don't, you know, Peter David's just not the kind of iconoclastic revolutionary mind. Right. Well, no, Alan, no. Alan, Alan Moore with a head injury with a <laughs> lot of the inclinations of a Busick or a Wade, and yeah. you get Peter David, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Uh, so yeah, yeah. I just wanted to give him his props because obviously, and just last things last, one of the worst things that happened to the Hulk is smart Hulk. And he did invent that, but I insist that his invention was better than what we've seen. He invented what he invented was what if all the disparate parts of the Hulk from the gray Hulk to the savage green Hulk to the whatever future maestro he's going to be to the Bruce Banner's personality. What if we could all get them to sit down and stop fighting and stop raging inside of him and he could control the Hulk stuff. What would he do? And maybe if he was smart, they would do like a Jekyll and Hyde plot. Like he'd get more and more evil or more and more fucked up as he thought he was getting smarter. He was actually getting more and more fucked up and evil. That mm-hmm. could have been a great plot. But instead he just was like, Hey, I'm in total control of myself. Now I wear pants. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's go have some adventures. <laughs> and that's the most boring Hulk ever, <laughs> ever. Yeah, No, sure. Sure. Um, I, what I think was a real interesting and consistent through all the guys that we talked about is how they took what was, you know, once a sort of fun, adventurous story with every once in a while, some interesting points, some big concepts, and then turned it into more character driven, uh, more depth, uh, just a little bit more, I guess, literature and nuance uh, mm-hmm. to the characters that they mm-hmm. we didn't have quite get in the the earlier area. And then I think what's great about the next episode that we're going to do is that other people also built upon what these other these guys we just talked about did. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get some real interesting stuff. Um some derivative, some blowing your mind type of stuff. Yeah. Turn it on I- its head. I mean, I I will say, you know, this hasn't really been canonized yet, but I often think that like the modern age of comics started essentially on 9-11 and like there was such a cultural shift with 9-11 and for, you know, maybe thankfully, however you want to put that, it gave birth to a generation of comic book writers that really did some amazing stuff. And at the forefront of that are guys like Grant Morrison, um, Warren Ellis, Mark Miller, all guys who, you know, will get into have their pluses and minuses for sure. But that era of comics through the 2000s was really the ascendancy of the writer in the same way that like the image era was the ascendancy of the artist. 
Couldn't say it better myself. So that concludes this episode of The Greatest Pod, the Jobbers episode slash 90s <laughs> guys <laughs> episode. Um, I think this one was good to show that the, the people who are iterative are just as important as the iconoclasts when we're talking about serialized literature. 100%. Um, so as always, if you want to support us monetarily, real easy to do. You just go to patreon.com slash the greatest pod. You sign up for whatever tier you want and you get the extra pods from us talking stuff uh, a little more deep, sometimes super personal, sometimes very silly. So check it out. Uh, if you don't want to support monetarily, I totally understand. Gas is very expensive. So you can leave us a five star review. That super helps, too. It helps us move up in the charts gets more listeners, share our stuff with everybody you do. And, you know, the other thing is if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe and uh, click the notification bell. Look, I did it a little bit cleaner, Ed, so that doesn't hurt your feelings. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> you great like that, that you called attention to it. So yeah. uh, also, when you're on those <laughs> channels, when you're on The Greatest Pod, you can also mosey on over to the Reboot It channel. If you want to see us take on the future of movies, uh, we have a bunch of episodes on there. I think four seasons of, yep. of episodes of us basically predicting what Hollywood would do. I mean, we weren't trying to do that. We were trying to create something and be cool. But boy, did Hollywood love a lot of the or, or rather we're in the zeitgeist of what a lot of great writers did with a lot of great pitches. You look at our um, He-Man pitch, which is basically the Barbie pitch. Look at our uh, Star Wars pitch, which is the best Star Wars thing that's ever been created, period. <laughs> yeah, they wish <laughs> they were doing what we suggested. Dude, they fucking wish. You know what I'm saying? We rebooted Lord of the Rings, for Christ's sake. We're crazy. So go to the Reboot It channel, and you'll see a lot of, of boundless creativity on there. I'll, I'll be honest with you. We, you know, I haven't thought about that Lord of the Rings reboot. It it's that good. shares a lot of similarities with what they're doing in Rings of Power. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> did people watch our stuff that we didn't think about, guys? You know, I don't know that it's that, but there is something to be said for like when you do, as these writers we've been talking about do, and you sit down and try to find those unexplored angles and those unexplored. Uh, crevices within these concepts sometimes you arrive at the same place and I just like the fact that we are obviously operating on a very similar level with the people that are doing it professionally and uh, that keeps us going to also be some of the people that are doing it professionally uh, here here so um, also last things last please do buy Ron Swallow's comedy album on the wing of a dragon with cover art by me uh, it's it's years and years of nerd material I think you'll really enjoy it so thanks for listening to another jobberific iterative grim and gritty episode of the greatest <laughs>